0: Hey, it's Claire and Becca, and welcome back to Golden Hour Podcast.
1: Today, we are joined by Jade Baker, who is hands down one of the most accomplished, inspiring women I know. So without further ado,
0: welcome, Jade. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, We're going to start off by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Yeah. So my name is Jade Baker. I grew up in a lot of different places, but I graduated high school in Dallas, Texas. So Texas is kind of where I claim my home. Um, I grew up playing a bunch of different sports predominantly soccer and track and I ended up going to the University of Virginia on a sprinting scholarship. Um, A couple years in I became a hammer thrower and that is how I kind of finished off there as well and retired from sports and now I am a second year at Georgetown University Law Center where I'm also the student body president as of last week. Amazing
1: okay we're gonna Start back in the day and then work our way up to the present moment. Um, In an older episode, Claire and I kind of compared childhood notes and experiences on growing Mm -hmm. up regarding race. I grew up around almost entirely white people, whereas Claire inhabited a bit more of a diverse space as a kid. So where would you say you kind of fell on that spectrum, moving around a lot and ultimately landing or claiming Texas?
2: Yeah, I am in the all white people grouping. I was the only Mm -hmm. black person to graduate from my high school um between I think myself maybe the year below me definitely the year above me um so yeah I have grown up around almost exclusively white people even throughout the 10 different schools I went through in childhood um I think that just comes with it often comes with the territory um I my parents were blessed enough Uh, my dad's an NFL football coach so we've just been um blessed enough to be economically privileged and I think sadly often that puts you in white neighborhoods so I feel like that's something I didn't even internalize or realize why that was the case until I got older but it's definitely something that I now grappled with in adulthood.
0: So do you feel like, did you ever feel like you were the token Black friend? I know um, even in my diverse school, I still, you know, sometimes felt that way. And now being at UVA, I felt that way. But growing up, did you ever feel like you were maybe the token
2: Black friend? Yeah, I feel like I was tokenized um, in outward facing opportunities, whether it was by schools or by sports teams or by programs. But I actually felt in my friend groups by my peers, I actually felt the opposite and almost that my Blackness was completely erased, um, that nobody ever wanted to acknowledge that I was Black or felt the experiences of a Black American. Um, people would make racially charged jokes with fully, fully intending that I wouldn't get offended by it fully depending on that it didn't apply to me. Um, whether it was generalizations about Black people's stereotypes, um, economically charged strokes, thinking that it wouldn't affect me just because um, I didn't grow up in uh, with economic struggles. I think that was more the history of my childhood was just the, that feeling of, I did not realize, I think I was, I think for a lot of people, they're not, they don't realize they're different until they're told they're different. I feel like for me, that was first grade. Um, I think it was six years old. Girls on the playground told me they wouldn't play with me because I was brown. Um, I didn't really, I have sisters, a bunch of sisters. Um, so I didn't really get why being, I I kind of figured, of course I was Brown. Um, I didn't really figure that was a thing that mattered that I was Brown and they weren't. And I feel like that was after that, I kind of internalized that and was like, I have to be as not different as possible. So whereas I take some responsibility for erasing my own blackness as a child, I think the society around me also took every effort they could to just do that further.
1: Yeah, I definitely relate to that, Um, especially like middle school, even early high school. Mm -hmm. I was the only I mean, the school I went to from kindergarten to eighth grade, my sister and I were the only two black people in the entire building, faculty, staff, students, nothing. It was just me and her. And I didn't think anything of it until I was a lot older, because like you said, you don't know that there's something to realize until someone points it out to you Mm -hmm. and I can't put my finger on like a distinct moment but I remember at one point I was like no one here looks like me except for my own sister and Mm -hmm. I played soccer I played a bunch of sports and I was like the only time I see people of color is in my own house my family lives abroad so I don't you know have my grandparents over it's really just me my mom my dad and my sister and that's it Mm -hmm. it was kind of a double-edged sword because on one hand I was I felt a little singled out a little bit alienated at times like I don't look like these people but on the other Mm -hmm. I was so motivated to be like the best version of a black person these kids had ever seen because for most Mm -hmm. of my early peers they didn't know anyone besides me and my sister so I was like oh well I have to be the best this that and the third because I'm the black one that they know and if I do a bad job they're gonna hate black people for the rest of their lives mm-hmm. um is that something that you kind of took on as a kid at all or, or not really
2: yeah I think the burden of overrepresentation is super super real um I think when you're the only black person in a space you take on this black exceptionalism that you don't even know you're doing and I, I honestly think that's just from things we hear and things we see um, whether it's from our peers or in the media, you kind of see stereotypes um, or you see really racist attitude towards black people. And you now want to prove that that's not true, or you want to prove it's different. And you're 12 years old and it's not your responsibility to do, but you're sure it is. So I definitely feel like, especially somebody with my personality, I, I am really um, loud. I'm very bold. I, I'm, I, as what some people, I guess my whole entire childhood would describe as sassy Um, I feel like a lot of the angry black woman tropes fit me um, to in people's eyes and and especially in white people's eyes. And that's something I had to learn to be okay with and know that um, the angry black woman doesn't exist. Um, It's a fallacy, it's tried, it's just something made to cut black women down. And I think as a kid, that was something I tried to shrink myself away from. And I've seen, I uh, have a little sister who has a really different personality from me. And I think even more so, she has been really subjected to that. She's overly nice. She um, placates a lot of people in a way that I don't or I'm not willing to. So I've seen, like, not only through me, but through my sisters, how these, um, how representation can a- affect Black girls. And interesting,
0: uh, both points from both of you, Becca. I know you were saying that you felt like you had to be the representation. Of you know that black girl, which um, I actually never knew about you, um, so I found that interesting. And Jade, you said that you know you had to be as not different as possible, which I never realized up until this moment that that's exactly how I had felt through middle school as well. And so for me, part of that was you know straightening my hair every day Mm -hmm. um, to you know fit in and not look. And because my my friends would my, my white friends would mention, Oh, do you have a weave? Do you have a weave? and I would get so like offended by that. And so then I, I was determined to have straight hair, like all my white friends. Um, I know that you said, you know, you, you knew that you were loud. you knew that you were kind of that, that stereotype of the angry black woman. Did you, and you said that you were, you know, you were okay with that. Did you ever try and, you know, silence yourself or change yourself to, to fit in or be as not different as possible?
2: Yeah, I think I definitely did. I think when I say, I was okay with it. I think it was to an extent to which I had to be okay with it to be happy. Um, And now that I'm an adult, it's much easier to say I was okay with it than when I was a kid. Um, So yeah, I think there were definitely times, I think people don't, especially people your age, they don't realize how much their reaction to you and how much, um, how much they project onto you and how much that affects a person. I feel like Whenever I did pretty much anything, um, my group of friends who I I love and I know they, we've talked many times about this since, um, they would all of a sudden make it look like I was overreacting and just going crazy about everything. I always was painted as crazy. I was always painted as insane. Um, And I think in the time I kind of embraced that to a degree to make myself feel like, okay, they're not like they're not gaslighting you or laughing. Obviously I didn't know what gaslighting was back then, Um, but they're not gaslighting you or they're not making fun of you. This is just how you are. You are crazy or dramatic. Um, But I feel like I would, there would be times where things were out of line or somebody did truly insult me. And I just said nothing because I didn't want to be painted as someone who was going to go ballistic about every little thing. So I think um, to the extent that I could, as a kid, I definitely did tone myself down in a way that, I would never even think of doing now that i'm an adult
1: yeah i think you also raise a very good point about being financially secure as a kid because there's nothing in theory nothing that really separates you from these in your as a little kid in your friend's eyes mm-hmm. there's nothing that really distinguishes you from them besides what you look like if you want to go to the whatever your favorite restaurant you can't you're not saying oh i can't come or your parents mm-hmm. are letting you go to their house and things like that there's no physical boundaries that they think oh well I can't go to Jade's house because you know my mom doesn't doesn't like their side of town it, it was never mm-hmm. like that as a kid so it's like you don't really realize that the little things that are just as not okay you're just like eh she didn't mean anything anything by it she called me an Oreo but she she's just, yeah she thinks it's funny whereas now it's like it's just not funny yeah. it's not cool and anymore. I,
2: I think especially that's especially true with you see your friends and your friends are like people you grow to love. And even if you kind of now looking back, realize your friends didn't really love black people, but they loved you. um, You know, they loved you. Whereas I think you can see that difference, the actual boundary with friends, parents or coaches or teachers. Like when I look back and think of the things that like adults were completely okay with saying to me as a kid, um, I'm like, I can't, I, I can't, fathom like and it's stuff I like would have never told my parents because I either like just were slightly brought back by it or never thought twice about it but I feel like as you kind of have that generational gap and like attitudes of racial attitudes changing that's where you really saw it I remember I had a history teacher who I did well on a test it was his first time ever coaching I mean he was also a coach but it's his first time ever having me in class and he was shocked he kept saying he was so shocked that I was smart he never knew I was smart too Um, in reference to my like athletic ability which I just at the time thought was so strange um, Mm. because I never done poorly in school and I had no record of not being smart Um, and it's just like it those also carry out we're all athletes Those also carry out on the fields when you um, have white coaches and you're always being called a freak of nature or a beast Um, obviously those are meant to be compliments and they're not malicious but they also take away from the skill that you have very much harnessed and worked on your entire life and reduce it all to genetics, which just isn't the case for when you get to that level.
0: Yeah, and I feel like those um, terms, freak of nature, super athletic, oh, she's super fast. They're not saying that about the white girl sitting next to you who would yeah. <laughs> even be as fast or just as a Like they're, they're only saying about the black girl um, and identifying her that way. But um, okay, so we're gonna jump towards in time a little bit and talk Mm -hmm. about your time at UVA, specifically on the track and field team. Um, You set and taught multiple records and I'm pretty sure that I read that you didn't start throwing until college. Um, Is that true? You didn't pick up a hammer until college?
2: Yeah, so I started throwing my sophomore year of college, um, which was really bizarre for me. Um, It's kind of a testament to just, I guess, human will <laughs> and believing in yourself because I, my freshman year of college, I, I came here as a sprinter. also was one of the top sprinters in the country. I had a bunch of um, state championships from Texas. So I thought, even if I, I knew college track was going to be hard, but I thought even if I wasn't going to be the best freshman year, I was still going to be fine. I was still going to kind of get my bearings and that all kind of changed through um, my relationship with my coach who he, we have since kind of made amends and we are okay now. Um, And I I understand a little bit more where he was coming from, but we had a very toxic relationship. My coach and I, my freshman year, I wasn't producing on the track. I felt like I wasn't being given an opportunity to produce on the track. Um, He shut me down. I, as a response, I shut down. So we just kind of lost respect for one another and couldn't continue the way we were continuing so um, I was given to another coach who was coaching hurdles at the time, and that kind of was like the start of building back um, up who I was as an athlete, who I was as um, competent. And then I kind of just always figured I just had to get through this horrible year and then I'd transfer. Things just didn't add up. The stars didn't align between um, having literally nothing to prove from freshman year that I could still run fast. Um, transferring to like any of the schools I wanted to was going to be hard, especially um. With this particular coach at the time, it was also still going to be hard. Uh, so I just stayed, and then that is when Coach Merrick, who is the throws coach at UVA, he began to teach me hammer. It was recommended to him by um, a really prolific hammer thrower who just saw me running, and said, and saw me in the weight room, and said that girl could throw hammer. And um, basically, everybody was like, "No, she can't." Um, and I, if you if you saw me now, you would you would say, yes, she could. But back then I was like, uh, I came into college, like maybe like um, 130 pounds, 125, 130. Um, And then when I was competing at my highest peak of hammer, I was competing at 180. Um, So about like 50 pounds of um, muscle put on um, between here and there. Um, But yeah, it's something I really grew to love. That second year was really, really hard for me because obviously I wasn't good. I never picked it up. I was too small. Um, but my coach is really what saved me and what told me like, this is going to all work out in the end. You just have to stay the course. So he was right. (laughs) (laughs) Having a
1: coach in either direction is Mm -hmm. really like a game changer. When I was younger, my, one of my first like real soccer coaches, like a real travel team, he just wasn't a fan of mine. I don't know why but he was also the parent of one of the players which never is a good thing but yeah (laughs) him and I (laughs) we did not get along and I was pretty young at this point and there would be opportunities that would come up and he would kind of push things kind of away from me and I didn't know that until probably a couple years ago and this is when I was very young um and after a while I was like if you're not in my corner like I don't want to try I don't Mm want to perform especially a sport like soccer if you love every other player on the field and not me don't I don't want to play like I don't I don't want yeah. to be here. And it really took a toll on me and everything else. Cause I was like, I don't, I loved playing soccer. Now all of a sudden I was like, I hate it here. <laughs> I don't want to do this. I mm-hmm. don't yeah. Not having any fun. Like um, I'm done. Uh, but aside from sort of that confidence boost, when you shifted um, to a different coach, did you notice any other like personal skills gained from your time on the track team?
2: I've always kind of had an affinity towards leadership positions. Um, I was like that kid who I mean I'm still that kid obviously but I was that annoying kid who was always student council president and stuff like that but I think that kind of disappeared going into college and I felt like I was kind of missing that piece of me but then as I kind of grew up on the track team and even though I wasn't the most productive member the highest scoring member um, my first couple of years I really grew into myself as a leader and um and it's more like track there's about a hundred people on your team. And so to be able to get to a point where you really feel like you are in a position of authority and you can ha- make a real difference on the team's performance and people's individual lives. I feel like that's something i I definitely have taken away from it, just that comfort and, um, When other people started to come to me for certain things and um, I was asked to make speeches or talk to the team to do certain things, I feel like that was something that really kind of pushed me back in the direction of like leadership and put me back on that road. And then other than that, I think college track is something that you, you don't do for free because it's that bad. Um, but it, it, like, it just, I just c- couldn't um, but that being said it's something that like if you get through it you'll miss it on the other side because it's really a one like a, a one-of-a-kind experience and you just gain I feel like so much grit and perseverance as a human from making it through yeah
0: do it um, and- <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure a lot of people would say that about their sports also but um, I actually never thought about it that way because Kind of the same thing for me as well. Is that I gained confidence through my sport, especially when people are coming to you and asking questions, mm-hmm. and that's kind of how I was all through high school. And then when I got to UVA, you know, I was at the bottom again, and okay. I, you know, really struggled with my confidence. Um, and now, as like I'm progressing, and people are coming to me, and I'm looked at more of a leader on the team. I definitely it shows on and off the field, and the way I carry myself. Also, because I'm looked as a leader, look to you as a leader, like I also try and carry myself like that off the field. As mm-hmm. well. So I think. that's Interesting. Yeah. I,
1: don't know. I also cool. think when you go to a really high level program, everyone was the best on their team for the best yeah. part. <laughs> so now it's like you put a bunch of people who think they're the best all together. Someone isn't the best anymore. Um, and I think that's like a very hard adjustment personally to sort of re-acclimate and discover what your new role is. Maybe you still are the best, but in a lot of cases for me, I definitely wasn't. And I had to kind of figure out where do I stand in a performance sort of way but also how do am i am i comfortable with that because i didn't know how to not be the best at a lot of things especially mm-hmm. as a kid um so when i got here i was kind of like i don't know how to do this i don't i don't like it like i need to get comfortable mm-hmm. with this and i need to do it fast because if i don't it's going to be absolutely miserable so like yeah. you said don't do it for free and like claire said i don't think anyone's yeah. doing it for free
2: <laughs> no no no
0: yeah so and now you got georgetown law so incredible wow <laughs> <laughs> Have you always wanted to pursue a legal degree?
2: No, actually, um, I went to school to be a sports reporter. Um, I did media studies in undergrad. I worked for Virginia sports video. Um, My whole career there, um, I worked, I usually ended up, I had practice, I had school, and then I was working um, at the video office for like 10 to 20 hours a week. which was like something I was super dedicated about uh, something I knew I always wanted to do. And then August 11th and 12th happened my junior year of college. And that really kind of shifted the paradigm of like what I can do versus what I should do with my life. And I knew I still wanted to be a sports reporter. That was still what I genuinely wanted to do. But I had this nagging feeling that I, for me personally, I should do more um, because I really was shook by that. And I was shook by by how it all happened and how UBA allowed it to happen and um, how it was just like this just complete display of hate and it was legal and it was fine. And I just knew I wanted to have a hand in policy um, one day that doesn't even necessarily have to always affect racial justice, but just kind of like the attitudes of the country. And I figured a law degree was a really good place to start. So I've kind of found a happy medium now that I'm in my second year of law school. I think I'll still start out in sports law, but it's really nice to have a JD underpinning things because it means I always could position into policy or politics and have a lot more weight behind decisions that I want to make. So that was kind of what shifted it for me. was just kind of, I knew I needed to open more avenues because in order to do more um, than just that singular tunnel vision with my life.
1: Yeah. I can imagine that is very hard. Law school is not easy. Um, How do you, how do you kind of stay motivated, stay on top of things, stay kind of at your best when it's not the easiest thing in the world?
2: Being a student athlete really helps me, um, in that I feel like one, you, you just have that drive. You have that competitive drive, um, and law school, law school is almost competitive to a fault and that every single thing we do is ranked and curved and graded. And it's impossible, like, you could get a 95 out of 100 points on a test, but if 10 people got a 96, now you have a B. Um, So it's, you always have to kind of stay on top of things. And I think that's something that kind of excited me about it was like the challenge. Now, I'm not as excited about the challenge now, but that's (laughs) something going in. (laughs) It's something going in that I liked about it. And then I also think that I just feel I feel like I have this like weird upper hand that it's not real and that I was given like five hours of my life back a day um after I finished school. I usually had practice from like 6 30 in the morning to nine, which was when I like arrived at treatment to finishing practice every morning. And then I had lift um from five to seven counting treatment. So now all of a sudden I had all this time. Um, every single day that yes other students had but they didn't know that it was like free time (laughs) Um, like they couldn't really appreciate it for what it was um so I feel like I just became really well organized and I I was able to make the best use of my time because I had been organizing a lot less time and doing a lot more in it for four straight years so now it's like I have one thing to do And it's a big thing. Like, it's a massive thing. It's a really time-consuming thing, but I know how to prioritize it.
1: Now that you have all that time, is there anything new, any hobbies, anything new that you've picked up now that you're like, I have all this time, what do I do with it?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, My first year I worked, uh, I was a hostess at a restaurant in D.C. Um, I loved doing that. I would still be doing it if it wasn't for the pandemic. But so that was what I did my first year. Um, I don't recommend having a job in law school though. I, like I said, I only did it because I like to be like spread paper thin for whatever reason. <laughs> and then uh, I have no idea why. And then, um, but now I, which just really uh, helped me a lot as a retired athlete. I think my first year, I really, really struggled. Um, everybody's dream is to go out on a high, but I feel like going out at my peak was like kind of my nightmare. Um, when you're in an Olympic sport, and there is more you can do, um, especially at the time 2020 was just the next year. I, I It was really hard for me to decide to let track go at that time in my career because I knew I had so much more to give. Um, so that was something that was really hard to wrestle with my first year of law school. But now I've joined a gym um, in D.C. It's called Metabolic, but it's like a really, really intensive, um, almost like it's kind of like weight based, um, but like kind of these short intervals, like really hard bursts like very very similar to my weight training in college Mm -hmm. um and it's like with a a lot of like-minded people a lot of people who were college athletes and I feel like that's kind of given back to me a little part of that like I still miss the competition but I feel like um just be exercising and um feeling like yourself and kind of not letting that piece of you go does Mm -hmm. goes a long way
0: that makes a lot of sense Um, And you were just recently elected student body president, making you the first ever black female president of Georgetown Law. What does that mean to you?
2: I think in the context of my own story and in the context of like history at large, um, in the context of my own story, I did not think I was gonna get into Georgetown. I was pretty sure, I like knew I wanted to either go there at NYU um, I also knew I was going to get it rejected from both, so that was kind of like the the deal I was which making. Which you didn't. With I myself. know you got into both yeah. and <laughs> many other places. <laughs> but the deal I was making with myself was: you, if you apply, you're going to apply all these really good schools, and then when you get rejected, you can go be a sports reporter. So that was like <laughs> the deal. Um, and then I got in, which is just shocking to, to all me. of them. Then, just
1: uh, for <laughs> let the people let the people know. Go look at her Instagram. the The receipts are all there
2: so yeah I got in. and I um had my choice when it was all said and done I ended up choosing Georgetown and then um I ran for um a 1L delegate my first year there and then I ran for uh day vice I ran for vice president my next year and then now um I run for president and it just it means so much because George, i just feel like there are so many qualified people at georgetown there are so many other people who could be in this role um there are so many people who are going to be in even greater roles one day after it um so the idea that i get to represent them and i get to hopefully make their school experience better it just means everything to me and i feel like in the context of we're in washington dc um dc's had a rough year um between the insurrection and um just like switching everything over with the inauguration. We have our first black woman in the white house. Um, I kind of feel like it was the perfect storm. And also Georgetown is coming off of, um, our law center is coming off of kind of a racial scandal within itself um, between uh, some professors who were caught on camera um, using kind of derogatory terms. Um, So that kind of is something that like, affected me because it kind of felt like something I it confirmed something I already kind of felt like um which was like sometimes like oh I shouldn't be here I'm only here for x y and z reasons. but then the next day actually right after um the scandal to get elected the first black woman president it was just really affirming for me and I hope it's really affirming for a lot of other people and I'm just happy that this barrier has been broken now so now the next person Isn't the first, and it's just natural and it's just normal for a Black woman to be student body president or anybody else to be student body president at this point.
1: Do you feel like you've been embraced with open arms and received a pretty warm reception from the rest of the student body?
2: Yeah, I I think it's been a really overwhelming um, response, and I've been really, really grateful for that. Um, I feel like through my experience as vice president, I knew for a fact I was the most qualified person for this role. Um, and I would do the best job at it, but to hear other people say that they felt the same way as well. Um, and that they know, they know I'm going to meet the moment really means a lot to me. So I feel like that's, and it could have gone either way. And especially coming off of, um, like I said, that incident where we've seen a lot of trolls, we've seen a lot of people claim that we're all there for affirmative action and everything to see my own community, um, kind of embraced me meant a lot. That's really cool.
1: I know we talked about representation in a personal sense especially growing up a little bit but over the past like 18 months I feel like the phrase representation matters is like everywhere painted on the side of the bus on the road everywhere um Mm -hmm. it definitely does but I think what we don't see as much conversation about is what that representation means to the person doing the representing um it can be a lot of pressure it's a lot it's a big burden to carry to be the first female this the first black that etc and as we said you've been killing it with accolades so how do you sort of handle that pressure of being the first of whatever it is that you're doing
2: yeah um i think my parents prepared me really well for moments like these they've kind of always what they call the baker girl standard um if you've met <laughs> my other sisters are all the accolades are equal when it comes to them so i feel like they my parents have always just told me be that do the best you can do in every single thing and that's that best is going to be a lot and it's going to be a lot of responsibility and it's going to be a lot to take on but you can do it so I have never really shied away from being the first or um, being the leader or something because I know I could handle it and I've always been really really affirmed which I feel like is really important especially for female leaders Um, I've been affirmed my whole life by both my parents that um, I was kind of like created for this purpose and created for xyz reasons so I feel like the representation aspect of it, to me personally, just means a lot because it means other people see it and think they can do it. But as just like Jade Baker, as myself, it just means that I have to do the best I can do to keep representing myself and my family the best I can. That makes
1: a lot of sense. Well, you're doing a great job, but we have to <laughs> we have to wrap up a little bit. So I'm going to ask you <laughs> the same question I asked my older sister in the first episode of this season. Say you're writing a book mm-hmm. your whole life what is the title? What is the lesson you want people to take away oh, from the wow. book? And what is like a blurb or a sentence or whatever you want on the back? Convince us to buy your book. What's it called? All that.
2: Oh, this is hard. It's a hard question. Um, we keep
1: asking people and I'm like, I should think of my own answer and I can't. So no Yeah.
2: <laughs> a title is hard. Um, I think, I couldn't think, I can't necessarily think of like a one clicking title it would be something like the art of adaptability. It would be something like that, just because that's really been the story of my life. Um, I've lived in 14 states. Um, You have to adapt a lot. Um, I had to become a thrower (laughs) um, in a year (laughs) when I was in college. Um, That took a lot of adaptation, and then just kind of switching into the mindset of law school and kind of um, adapting to that environment. So that's kind of, Pro- that would probably be it. I think that's the story of my life. I think it's kind of how it's gotten, how I've gotten this far. It's just my ability to adapt um, and not be shaken by circumstances.
1: Well, I would, based on just knowing you alone, I'd buy your book.
2: Thank yeah. you.
1: <laughs> well, thank you to Jade for joining us and to you all for listening. I'm always so inspired by her story and her mindset, and I hope you all gain just as much from listening to her as we did. Please be sure to follow us on Instagram at goldenhour.podcast and tune in next Monday for a new episode. Thanks again. Bye.